Hi, you're listening to the Law and Blockchain Podcast. This is your host, Amy Wan. The Law and Blockchain Podcast is part of the To the Extent That podcast series by the American Bar Association Business Law Section. The ABA Business Law Section podcasts provide general information and are not a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ABA Business Law at AmericanBar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everybody. It's Amy Wan, and my special guest today is Tung Chan. So Tung was a legal advisor to Vitalik Buterin and Ethereum in the early days, starting from the launch of Ethereum's Genesis block back in July 2015. She was Ethereum's first general counsel until April 2018, when she became general counsel for the DAZ Foundation, which is, a, which is a blockchain startup for decentralized autonomous vehicles. Prior to Ethereum, Tung was the securities regulator for the state of Hawaii and led a team of prosecutors and investigators. She began her practice as a securities lawyer at Clary Gottlieb in New York City, and today she is going to be talking about issues around incorporation, you know, incorporation and formation for a lot of these blockchain and crypto companies. You know, Tung and I actually sat on a panel recently where she discussed this topic, and, and I was so glad when she, um, you know, agreed to, to be on the, the podcast show because I thought she just had really interesting insights. So, Tung, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Amy, for inviting me. Fantastic. So let's start off with this. Um, a let's say a crypto or blockchain startup uh, comes to you and says, "Hey, Tongue, we want to start a new company. Um, what should we do? What, do, do you want to maybe talk to us a little bit about how you got into this space and and how you would advise such a startup?" Sure. So I think with your background um, that you read about me, I, it's pretty clear that I'm a pretty traditional lawyer. You know, I went to law school, I graduated at clerk, I went to big big law in New York, and then I became a regulator, um, all very traditional. So I had a personal relationship with uh, the team at Ethereum, and I met Vitalik, and in 2015, around the launch of the Ethereum platform, Genesis Block, I was uh, I became an advisor, legal advisor to him and the foundation. And I really didn't know that much, like most lawyers, I, I would say, didn't know that much about blockchain and um, cryptocurrencies. And I remember, I knew so little that I remember saying to Vitalik, well, what is the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum? <laughs> I, I didn't know. And I explained it to me. And so I'll tell you what I remember. Um, he said, well, you know, Bitcoin, you have this ledger. You can see the the, the um, coins move with their hash. And um, Ethereum is programmable. I mean, I, and I don't want to get into the deep arguments about whether Bitcoin is also. But Ethereum <laughs> is beautiful very much programmable because it used if-then statements on top of uh, the protocol to so that you could say, you know, if if this mortgage balloons in 2012, then it pays out at that date. So um, you can program and put, and that means you can program apps, dApps on it, do all, this, all these creative things on it. Um, and that's how he described it. And I think what you see is that 
there are some who say Bitcoin is programmable, but you would see that most of the cryptocurrencies that have been part of the cryptocurrency gold rush uh, are ERC-20 tokens, and that just means they're compatible and built on the Ethereum platform. And not only does the platform make it easily programmable, but it's easy to make a token on it. That's why everyone can do it so quickly, right? So that's how I got started on it, and that's how I learned about it. I had to be schooled at a pretty basic level. Um, and uh, then Ethereum, of course, by that time was already incorporated in Zug, Switzerland. And I don't believe, I think like any lawyer, I was like, well, why, why did you pick Stiftung and Zug? And I think the answer was not a lawyer's answer. You know, it wasn't like, <laughs> well, because the this way and the law is that way. And the business and personalities and my recollection really wanted um, a foundation. He didn't want a corporation and, and that's what they ended up with. So what what Ethereum is, is a stiff tongue. And so I have been working um, since that time, 2015, up to 2019, so the last four and a half years, um, with organizations that are, um, you know, incorporated in Zoog. Uh, and, and of course, uh, with organizations that are looking at or dealing with Malta, Gibraltar, Singapore, some of the more uh, popular jurisdictions for incorporating. So... I understand that Ethereum is incorporated in Zug, Switzerland, but it seems like that is, you know, the 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 general thing amongst a lot of these, you know, decentralized blockchain companies. A lot of them are incorporating in Switzerland, and as you mentioned, I, you know, when it comes to blockchain startups. Um, they seem to really like very exotic locations, you know, not Malta, Gibraltar, Singapore. What what happened to Delaware and why aren't people incorporating in Delaware? That's a really good question. You know, normally people come to me and their their question is framed the other way. Like, should we, you know, I'd like to be in Zug. And I think a good question for lawyers is why not Delaware? Um, and I think one of the answers was in the early days and even now, um, it's been um, you know, it's been shown to bear that in the early days there were there was a lot of concern about about U.S. regulators how they would deal with um, you know cryptocurrencies and and I think because of that I think um, projects were looking for uh, jurisdictions out of the U.S. and that's come to fruition. You know that the, the SEC and the CFTC and um, the other regulators have made lots of statements. It, I, I think it's fair to say it's not a coordinated approach. Uh, it seems to be a moving target um, and with lots of threats of enforcement. And so, you know, the initial instinct of like, oh, let's not do it here probably isn't wrong. But um, I think there was, that was a commitment. I don't think it was just, oh, let's go somewhere exotic. I really think it was, you know, let's try to do this in another jurisdiction. Uh, we're too uncertain about how the regulators. So what happened was Ethereum, like you said, was set up in Zug, Switzerland and in um, 2015. And I, it single-handedly really made Zug what people now call Crypto Valley. Right? Mm -hmm. Because of it was set up there and was so successful so quickly, um, there was a, 
there was a flood of projects that went there. And just to give you a sense, when I started with Ethereum, I think ethers were less than 30 cents. At the heyday, ethers went up to $1,200 ether, probably more. So it, it went from a capitalization of 18 million to 80 billion in like a year and a half. So That's crazy. Because of that, yeah, because of those numbers, I guess people were thinking, Zoog, go to Zoog, that's where the action is happening, or maybe even some superstition, like, let's go rub the head of, you know, the regulator at Zoog. <laughs> we'll become a unicorn. So, so the question now is, why? And I think um, that's a, I think that's a really um, important question to ask, because I'll tell you, in the last four and a half years, um, the legal landscape all around the world, the regulatory landscape, um, even the mainstream attitudes uh you know have evolved really rapidly but the the thing that has not changed is the fact that startups and you still need to pick a jurisdiction and that is the first question. um you know even with all these changes last night there was a very notable vc who called me and said you know we're thinking of incorporating in zoo should we incorporate in zoos right um so they're still asking the exact same question they have for for, for startup lawyers from the uh from the beginning so if you are in the field, you're going to advise startups, you know, you're going to get that question. And the first one they usually start up with, you know, is why shouldn't I be in Zoog? And I don't know that that's the way we should. I think when you're helping a client pick a jurisdiction, you should use the traditional skills that we've learned, which is to say, you know, why should you be in it? Um, right now, a lot of big projects, big projects, multi, you know, multi-million dollar projects, um, nine-figure projects. Go to Zoom because they want to follow Vitalik or they want to appear credible or that's where the action is um, or that's where the regulators really understand crypto. And I'm not sure that these are the good reasons uh, to incorporate in Switzerland without thinking more deeply about it. Um, so I, I, if I can, I'm not a Swiss lawyer, but I can tell you just in my personal experience about Zoog, um, I'm not a Swiss lawyer and I'm not giving Swiss lawyer advice, but um, Zoog is incredibly expensive. And the regulators, there aren't that many of them. They they are inconsistent and they've been backlogged. They issued guidance in 2018, and this was a big deal in the blockchain developer space. They're issuing guidance, utility tokens versus payment tokens versus security. Um, but then after they issued it, they had a really hard time with projects that came and said, you know, will you approve us or which one do we fall under? It took them a long time to, you know, get back to projects, and projects were you know, they're very fast moving. They couldn't just sit there waiting, and then they did. And then they had a fourth category called a hybrid, which was like, guess what? We have these three categories, but you might also be a combination of any, which just leads us back to the same uncertainty that they began with, which is, you know, how are you going to treat our tokens? Have the, think, have the regulators at all been, do you think they are more responsive or, or understanding of crypto? And and I have to assume there there might be some sort of, additional costs due to language barriers too, right? I think that the regulators feel a lot of pressure. My, my experience and my feeling is that they feel a lot of pressure to get it right. Um, I do think it's a jurisdiction that tries to get it right. They're not just feeling pressure and then it's, it's, not, a, it's not a banana. They obviously try to get it right. But, you know, they, they are not that staffed up. And uh, a lot of this is new, and, and they have a lot of pro, pro, you know a lot of projects there. So, um, so I think that's that's the problem. Um, everybody in Switzerland speaks English to some degree, and I think the issue is that there is some language barrier because when you're dealing with complex, you know, financial and nuanced technology, um, 
I think there there I think there will always be it's better managed in sort of the tongue you're most familiar with, I would say. And so I think that sometimes there are language barriers with regulators and what you end up doing is you end up going to a good firm, hopefully, that can help you um bridge it because the, the really solid good lawyers are very good you know, are totally fluent in English and and and, and Swiss. Uh, I mean sorry, totally fluent <laughs> in English and Swiss German. Um, so before we dive into corporate structures, you know, are are there any considerations or or you know real hand experiences you've found with any of the other jurisdictions? You know, the Maltas, Gibraltar's, the Singapore's. Yeah. So I think when you think about other jurisdictions, the ones that tend to pop up are Malta, Singapore, Gibraltar, and if I could just touch base on China and as well, no one's incorporating their uh, you know, with a new development project in the West, but something to think about. So, yes, with Malta, they passed three really, um, three very favorable laws in a row, and I think they did it on purpose to give the signal that they were going to be a really blockchain, cryptocurrency-friendly jurisdiction. So the local laws were valuable to them and attracted a number of exchanges. But Malta is a really small jurisdiction, and if if there are concerns with uh, Switzerland being uh, understaffed, I think Malta would certainly be uh, even more understaffed. And I think that, you know, you'd be concerned about the level of sophistication. They speak English, but in my experience, it's just a little more Wild West in my view. You know, the level of understanding between regulators and lawyers vary dramatically. So even if you're going to one of the top firms, some of the in my experience, some of the top firms are very knowledgeable, and then some of them are really not. Um, so it's much more of a Wild West field. You just a lot less certainty there. And uh, Gibraltar, I haven't really worked with. Um, and Singapore is uh, Singapore is very sophisticated. Their lawyers are very fluent. Their regulators are fluent, and they're um, like Switzerland. I really think they're trying to do the right thing, and they work really hard. And, um, I think with Singapore, it's far, and because they're very good regulators, I think they often come out on the, you know, on the side of, oh, you know, we got to be careful with um, how we deal with this, how we deal with cryptocurrencies and whether they're securities, you know, they, they're cautious. But they are sophisticated, so that's good, um, and they're English. So that's sort of my general experience with having worked with in these jurisdictions. And I just want to touch base based on China. So China, you know, has had this overall ban on cryptocurrency. You can't trade them, and they've, they've really been restrictive. Um, they passed their first cryptography law last month, and they're encouraging blockchain development, but they're not encouraging the cryptocurrency themselves. So I don't think anyone's trying to set up business there, but China and Korea are huge markets. And so I think that when you start talking about jurisdiction, um, not just for setup, but when you start to talk about blockchain projects, you know, it's, it just um, is something that comes up, uh, and you should think about if you're trying to do a project, you should understand that you're going to need to make sure you're not doing anything to China. That is all so, very fascinating. Um, do you have any recommendations for attorneys out there who are representing these types of clients um, in terms of how you should advise clients to proceed? Yeah, I do, and I think um, I would recommend that you know, you drill your clients to find out about their project, to really understand what they want to do and what, 
you know, makes sense for them, you know, what they want to do, where they want to see it going. You know, because a lot of these clients, they will come to you, and this is my experience as well, and, you know, the true believers in decentralization, the true believers in the advantages of the blockchain as a public blockchain decentralized, they believe, and I, this is generally, but they believe that, you know, the, these geographic restrictions don't make sense. And so for them, they think to themselves, well, if I do securities, if I register and incorporate in Switzerland and, and my project's in Switzerland, I can sell to anyone because they don't think, well, no, there's jurisdictional problems. In the U.S., if you, if you are <laughs> and you sell, sell to U.S. citizens, that gives you know, the SEC authority over you and what you're doing, right, you'd be in violation of U.S. securities laws. Um, so you should remind your clients that if they sell or solicit securities to or engage in money transmittal with U.S. citizens, they're subject to U.S. regulate, regardless of where they incorporate. And, um, and you know, they're also going to have this idea that, and I've seen this many times, we're not going to incorporate anywhere. Is that okay, Tung? Because if we don't incorporate anywhere, then no one has jurisdiction <laughs> over us. And um, none of us are liable. And, you know, as traditional lawyers, we need, we need to make sure we set the expectations for them and say, well, no, if you don't incorporate, at least under U.S. law, if you're not something else, then you're a general partnership and you're liable for each other and each one of you are fully liable, right? Um, so we need to sort of set that bar for them. Um, but you should drill them and ask them, you know, what they're trying to do and make sure they understand how some of this works. Um, yeah. And then, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, I've heard so many times from these from these people who come to me who are a novice in the law but really sophisticated in development. They say, "Well, also, you know, we're going to say that we just fly around the world so much that we have no <laughs> tax residence, so we're not going to be taxed anywhere." And you have to be like, "No, it's the other way around." You're so you know, you got to help them sort of set. Set the expectations. But if I could quickly go over some of the things I think um, lawyers should think about when they're helping their client. Um, yes, definitely. That, yeah. Okay. So in my five years of jurisdictions around the world and setting up blockchain startups and dealing with ICOs, here here are my thoughts. One is how is local counsel? Um, are they sophisticated? And make sure you interview. You know, just because somebody says these are the golden circle firms, or you read it in a book, these are the golden firms. You know, you don't know how you're going to fit with them. You don't know how responsive they are. They're not necessarily trained in the way that you're used to dealing with. So, if you're the general counsel and you're dealing with all these outside firms around the world, you know, you need to interview them and you need to vet them carefully because some of them, um, you know, they can talk a good game, but then if they don't know what they're doing, you can, you and your clients weigh a lot. And this, like, I'm sad to say, is something that I've seen uh, firsthand. Um, a corollary to that is how are opinions and legal advice handled in that jurisdiction? You know, you're going to be relying on outside counsel because you're not a lawyer in every jurisdiction. So you need to know the value of the advice. You're so, for example, in the U.S., you pay for opinions, and if you get it from a really good firm and you show regulators that you relied on this opinion in good faith, your regulators take that into account. Um, in my experience in Switzerland, they don't, right? pay for a big opinion, a fancy firm, and regulators like, we don't care. Why are you sending us, right? Um, so you need to know that before you pay, your client pays out, before you start to rely on your counsel. Uh, another thing to think about is the litigation. Do they have mm -hmm. a really aggressive to bar? And you can see this in the U.S. You have contingency fee lawyers, and so the risk assessment for people to sue is, is 
well, I'll try and, you know, we might get something. And Switzerland, uh, fees are illegal. So you don't have as much incentive to go ahead and sue because you're going to have to pay that uh, money up front. And so if you're setting up an organization and you think you're going to, your project is going to make a lot of money um, and possibly, you know, have litigation down the line, you want to consider uh, how aggressive the bar is and the jurisdiction, how friendly it is to defend. Um, the other thing I would say is to think about whether the jurisdiction deals with precedent and what that means for you, again, with litigation. So in a common law jurisdiction, there's usually precedent, and in one case means there's an evolution to another case. In non-precedential jurisdictions, um, I'm not even sure if that's the right word, but in jurisdictions that don't rely on precedent, you're going to um, you're going to have to understand that you can't rely on the case law there. And so that may work in your favor or not, again, your client and what they're trying to do and how, how that works. And the final thing I would say is you want to think about board life. So you're setting them up. So you want to know whether your, your client, who's now going to be the chairman of the board or on the board or, you know, involved in the board, how much liability there is, right? Is there, is the, does the jurisdiction uh, allow third party against board members? Not, a, not every jurisdiction does. Um, and so you want to think about, uh, you know, how the board is protected and whether the board can um, be sued in house. For example, in Switzerland, one interesting thing is that the supervisory authority over Stiftung can uh, decide to replace your board and then have the new board sue your old board. I mean, it doesn't happen. Wow. Often, but this is, yeah, this is a power they have. And these are things you look into and think about uh, when you're thinking about your. So that, that would be, you know, there are other things to think about, but those are things that I've seen that I think um, would have been useful to know um, it, when I was starting out. Um, so... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, those are definitely some gold nuggets. Um, let's talk about corporate structure real quick. I mean, Ethereum went through, um, you know, some, some interesting corporate structure and, and philosophical questions. Do you want to, do you want to go into that? Sure. So, you know, that is a big question. As I mentioned, a lot of the true believers in decentralized blockchain and in the decentralized space, they don't, want a centralized structure. So they'll come and say, you don't want to incorporate anywhere. We don't want to be a corporation. We don't want anything to do with that. And again, you know, you have to kind of level set with them and say, well, no, you know, mm -hmm. you have to be something because if you're not, you're going to default into a structure and you're not going to like it because you're going to have to put, you know, you're going to have no visibility on what that default is going to look like. It's going to be imposed upon you. Right. And so I worked with, a, I worked with a lot of people who thought about the DAO early structure uh, and they thought that they were really decentralized because everybody who wanted to participate anywhere could vote and so it wasn't controlled by any and it was like a and, and sorry very quickly what does DAO stand for decentralized uh, I think a decentralized autonomous organization I can't yeah. remember what the A yeah. stands for but yeah I think that was <laughs> um, and and um, the SEC came back and was like no you're not you know we don't think that you're so decentralized that nobody's liable, and um, and that's the heart of it. That, that you, if if you don't pick a if you don't pick an entity, you will be, you know, one will be imposed on. Um, so so the question there is, what kind of entity are you, at, um, and what kind of entity should you pick? And again, you know, you want to think about, uh, you want to think about board membership. You want to think about what you want to do down the line, um, and you know. Going to the 
to the idea of decentralization. So just because your project ends up being decentralized, that means somehow it becomes so decentralized that it's detached from your uh, initial structure, right? down the line, uh, the SEC has suggested can happen, um, doesn't mean that at the beginning, before you're fully decentralized, if that's your vision, that you you are, that you're not, right? I and mean, you're centralized, and so you're going to have all the liabilities and all the issues of traditional structure. And so in that case, I would say, you know, as a lawyer, you should probably be level setting with your, um, with your clients about, you know, the liabilities, how this all works, and you know, advise them that, yeah, maybe down the line you're going to be so decentralized, but in the beginning you're not, and you're going to be held liable in that way, and so you should put a, pick a structure using the same traditional governance structures that we know, you know, what decide whether you want to be a partnership or a corporation or a foundation, and you use the same rigor and discipline um, that you would if you had a traditional client coming to you, help them decide what kind of um, structure should they should have. And you can tell them, you know, yeah, maybe one day you'll be so decentralized that your project is on its own. But until that day, you know, as a lawyer, we need to protect you and give you the proper traditional structure to, to help you um, start your company, grow it. So that's what I would say. And that includes, you know, thinking, oh, if one day you want a, a traditional IPO because you think your project is going to go in that direction, you know, don't you know, an S-corp is probably not for you, a regular incorporation is more for you, right? So all these kind of uh, traditional questions and thinking about incorporation should be, I think, what a lawyer brings to the table when a new project comes to you in the blockchain space. And really, decentralization, I find, is it's a very nuanced question, right? Because it's decentralization of what? You can have decentralization of your management structure. You can have decentralization of your token holders, decentralization of your miners or block producers. So oftentimes, I know when I'm looking at projects, I'm like, well, what exactly about you is supposed to be decentralized, right? Because there's, it, to me, it's, it's never a black and white thing. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a spectrum, right? Um, and, you know, I'm sure the SEC is trying to grapple with those questions that as well, you know, how how decentralized do you have to be to not be security or, hey, if this, you know, ends up being publicly traded one day, but it's a decentralized organization and no one's in charge, who sits there and, you know, provides quarterly updates and, and things of that sort? I, I think these are all very interesting questions. Well, I would say as a former regulator, and I think this, you know, was really a headspace that was very clear to me when I started in the space. As a former regulator, um, you know, regulators are there for a public policy, right? And whether it's to protect retail investors or protect an institution, you know, there's a particular mandate for that regulator. Or, well, it's many mandates, but uh, there's a, usually a priority, of, like a main mandate for that. Right? And that regulator, is, in order to fulfill that mandate, is going to expect that somebody is responsible. As long as there are some, you know, there's some human intervention in there, whether mm -hmm. it's, it's the people who are um, ultimately deciding on the vote or uh, deciding on the algorithm that decides the vote, right, or the people who developed a certain product, at the end of the day, the regulator's job and purpose is to hold somebody responsible so that there can be some management on, on, uh, on the risks to you know, retail investors or to whomever they are uh, mandated to primarily to protect. And so let's just take the SEC case, right? The SEC is out there and Clayton 
Uh, Chairman Clayton has indicated he's very, very concerned about protecting retail investors, and that is, you know, a very important mandate for the SEC. And so when the DAO or some other organization comes up and involves a lot of retail investors and people have their money lost, you know, he's not going to, I think he and his team are going to say, well, somebody was responsible and we're going to drill down on, on this and we're going to find somebody who's going to be, who has uh, created this and, and we're going to hold them responsible. Now, with the Ethereum, it's become very complicated because they've now said, well, Ethereum is not, well, some voices in the CC said, Ethereum is not a security, bin is not a security um, because they're too decentralized. But they've also indicated at some point they weren't, that they were, well, maybe not Bitcoin, but certainly Ethereum at some point was very centralized. But they've got given very vague guidance as to when, you know, Ethereum changed from a caterpillar into a butterfly, right? <laughs> There's mm-hmm. no point. They, they, they don't pinpoint it. And because they don't pinpoint it, they create uncertainty in the market and they create uncertainty for other projects to follow it. And, and you know, this is not great. Um, when you have that kind of uncertainty with the kind of, uh, you know, key market that the U.S. is and key leadership that the U.S. plays as regulators uh, look to the U.S. around the world, um, you know, the answer, that those, that kind of uncertainty and vagueness drives product, projects away. And it's certainly, I believe, the case that a lot of interesting uh, blockchain cryptocurrency projects have decided to not be in the U.S. and to bubble out the um, geofence, I guess they call it, um, any any investors from the U.S. because they just don't want to deal with this uncertainty and the big guns of SEC enforcement. So I think you bring up a really good point that we don't uh, – all we know right now from the SEC is that at some point your project can be so decentralized that you're not centralized. But that's tautological. You're not centralized, be decentralized, right? That doesn't <laughs> – it was really anything to hang on to, but you're right. That is that is a question that remains out there that I think um, regulators and projects are going to have to continue to grapple with. At this point. Fantastic. Well, this has been a very informative discussion. Um, do you have any last uh, parting thoughts you want to add around, you know, corporate structures, um, incorporation, or, or anything like that? Um, I think the only thing that I'd like to add generally is that I do think that um, even if the rush for tokens and cryptocurrency seems to be, um, you know, dying down somewhat, I think the blockchain projects are going to continue and they're going to proliferate and they're going to be really meaningful in some ways uh, to how society you know, does, does business. And I think that um, we're all looking forward to clearer and better regulations from the U.S. and around the world so that, uh, you know, just so that these these really exciting projects that your clients are going to with um, can can get off the ground and not be stymied by the uncertainty there. Fantastic, um, Tung. How can people find and follow you? I'm I'm on LinkedIn, and um, my Telegram handle is at Tung Chan, so they can get in touch with me there. And my Skype handle is Find Tung. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and um, And I'm sure I'll see you again soon. Thanks, Amy. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.